Welcome, dear friends, to episode nine of You Don't Know Jack. I am your host, Sarah Dimio, and this is the podcast following every movie, every highlight in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. We are still in the swinging 60s, talking about Jack's early, low-budget works before his breakthrough role. Last week, we entered 1968 with Psych Out. And 1968 is where we are again today. So don't get it twisted. By 1968, Jack had been in the B-movie business for 10 years. But even though he was still, for the most part, unknown... And all of his works were either low-budget films or bit parts. Don't take that to mean that Jack was still struggling just to get by. By this point, he had pretty steady footing as not only an actor, but as a producer and a writer. And things just kept looking up. You'll notice, too, that there's a number of people by this point that Jack has worked with more than once. Directors like, obviously, Roger Corman, but also Richard Rush. Actors like Bruce Dern, Adam Rourke, Millie Perkins, Susan Strasberg. Jack was always very good at not only making connections with other people in the business, but keeping these connections. Because in a world where everyone has to constantly be in it for themselves, has to constantly be their own advocate, or else all the work will pass them right by, it's very easy for these connections to just fizzle out. That's part of the hustle that I keep talking about, which you have to respect. Jack was very good at being that person who knew how to say to people, hey, there's this new project coming up. Do you want to do this? Or being open to receiving those opportunities, saying yes when a producer or director comes and says, hey, can you help me on this? And not only saying yes, but adding something to it. Like, yes, I'll work on that with you. And we should also do this. It's all about keeping yourself visible. And it's his ability to do that, which would ultimately land Jack his breakthrough role. So before we get into today's review, let's see where we are in the life of Jack. By 1968, Jack and his wife, Sandra Knight, have officially divorced after having been separated for two years. Their daughter, Jennifer, turned five in September of that year. But the work keeps coming in. And Jack is Jack, okay? If you're a listener of this podcast, I'm sure I don't have to explain to you. Our man has always known how to have fun. I follow a lot of Jack fan accounts on social media, and I'm always seeing old pictures of him in the late 60s with this beautiful house with a big balcony in the Hollywood Hills or driving with the top down on his Volkswagen convertible. And, of course, there are the pictures where he's at his house listening to records with the old-fashioned giant headphones, and he's smoking a joint. You know which picture I'm talking about. I think it goes to show it really takes a certain type of personality to survive in Hollywood. It's not a place made for the shy, uptight, wallflower types. So being that we're still in 68... And I've been talking a lot 
the past few weeks about counterculture, drug use, free love, anti-establishment attitudes, all that fun stuff. The movie that we'll be talking about today falls right in line with that. So before I talk about the movie itself, let's first talk about the four stars of the show and how they came to be famous. Here we come, walk down the street, we get the funniest works from everyone we meet. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys, and people say we're monkeying around, but we're too busy singing. The Monkees were a rock band of the mid-1960s on that was created for the purpose of starring them in their own sitcom, which aired on NBC from 1966 to 1968. They were comprised of Davy Jones on vocals, Peter Tork on guitar, banjo, and keyboards, Michael Nesmith on guitar, and Mickey Dolenz on drums. They were the brainchild of director Bob Rafelson, who was just an aspiring filmmaker in the early 60s. He had first developed the idea for a rock band in their own situation comedy in 1962, but was unable to sell the series. But in May of 1964, Rafelson was working at Screen Gems, and he teamed up with Burt Schneider. Bert Schneider's father was Abraham Schneider, who headed the Colpix Records and Screen Gems division of Universal Pictures. So together, Rafelson and Schneider formed Raybert Productions. Now, this being the 1960s, obviously the Beatles were huge, bigger than Jesus, right? So it was after the Beatles film A Hard Day's Night came out in 1964 that this revived Rafelson's interest in wanting to do this situation comedy about a 60s rock band. So this time around, with Rafelson teamed up with Schneider, it does not hurt that Schneider is the son of the head of Screen Gems Television, mind you. They pitched the show idea again, and it does sell. So Davy Jones was already under contract with Screen Gems and to make records for the Colpix label, so they were able to get Davy Jones locked in. For the three remaining parts in the band, they held massive auditions. This was making the band, 40 years before making the band. So the Monkees as a sitcom, I'll be honest, I watched a lot of reruns as a kid, but they were never something I could get into. I was more into the Partridge family myself, but they were a big deal for their short time on the television airwaves. They were like a goofy, much more innocent version of the Beatles. So whether they meant to or not, these guys built this reputation of being very sweet, very G-rated. They were known as their characters. And while fame and fortune is nothing to complain about, I think when you're a musician, that's really not the reputation that you want to be known for. It's a pretty classic story. These young guys rise to fame almost overnight. They grow tired of the image that's been cultivated for them, so they want to break out of that. So that brings us to today's review, 1968's Head. Try as I may, 
I can't find anywhere how precisely Jack Nicholson and Bob Rafelson first met each other. If I could just find out how and where and when those two collaborators came together, I I just, I want to give it a chef's kiss. I say that, though, referring to their future projects together over the decades. I don't know that I would necessarily feel that way about Head. So here's the story. Following the cancellation of the sitcom in February of 68, Head, the next project of Raybert Productions, was produced by Jack and Bob Rafelson together. Written by Jack, directed by Rafelson. Executive producer Bert Schneider. I watched Head for the first time just a few days ago. I might watch it again sometime, knowing what I'm getting into. But for this initial viewing, I kid you not, I literally lost count of how many times I said to myself, what the fuck am I watching here? It was shot between February 19th and May 17th, 1968. And the movie is in what is called a stream of consciousness style, which is what it sounds like. It's a type of storytelling that mimics the way thoughts move rapidly through the mind. Jack and Rafelson, I have to assume with the aid of some substances to enhance their creativity, came up with this concept for the intended purpose of dismantling the monkey's carefully crafted image over their two years on network television. I don't really know what I was expecting going into it. I definitely expected a plot, though. I guess I kind of expected something like, this is Spinal Tap? Maybe like a fictionalized story of the band backstage at concerts? Something with a narrative. But honestly, this movie was more of a trip than the trip from 1967. For an hour and 20 minutes, I felt like I was literally watching someone's dream. The movie opens at a bridge dedication, all very official. There's this big ribbon cutting ceremony. There's this joke at the beginning of the dedication with the mic giving loud feedback every time someone goes to speak into it. And then out of nowhere, We see the drummer, Mickey Dolenz, running full speed around the corner and he breaks through the ribbon like he's crossing a finish line. And he's followed by his three other bandmates, also running full speed around the corner to the bridge. Mickey jumps from the bridge into the water down below. It's very psychedelic. The colors all get distorted and new songs from the band play in the background. Nothing is ever explained in the movie. We have a lot of scenes where the band is in some kind of a sitcom-esque scenario, like they're settlers in the Old West, or they're each a piece of dandruff all dressed in white on a person's head. And each time that it appears as though some unfolding of a story is about to happen, the scene changes. There's this scene with Mickey Dolenz, and he's suddenly out in the desert, and he hallucinates a Coca-Cola machine in the middle of the desert. So he runs for it, exhausted, but he has no change, and he can't get the machine open. That was a pretty entertaining little moment. (sighs) 
pathetic. Again. It's pitiful. Shut up. You shut up. No, you shut up. You shut up. Shut up. You. You, 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 you shut up, you shut up, you. Okay, I will. I can't. I can't hear. No, I, I'm deaf. Come back. I'm going. Isn't it George Michael Dolan's? I said, quiet, isn't it George Michael Dolan's? If you're someone who has ever watched the show Family Guy, it reminded me of years ago. I saw a scene with Brian and Stewie out in the desert, and if I'm remembering correctly, they see a Coke or it could have been some other soda brand, off in the distance and exhausted, dehydrated. They run the best they can towards it. And then when they get to it, they find that it's an RC cola machine. I never knew what inspired that joke, but I would have to assume that it came from head, right? I mean, unless there's some kind of phenomenon of people being inexplicably stranded out in the desert and they all have hallucinated name brand soda machines off in the distance, which I can't say that I know that to be the case. Now, we do see Jack once in the movie, but it's a cameo on screen roll. It happens in a diner scene. Peter Tork is sitting at a table holding an ice cream cone, and he's just staring into it, just staring as it melts all down his hand. And this large woman, the waitress at the diner, comes over to him, and she says, don't worry about those other guys. They just want to hurt people, abuse them. And Peter Tork says, how do you feel now? And she says, oh, come say, come saw. And suddenly, Peter Tork jumps up and decks her dead in the face. And we hear a bell sound, indicating that the scene cut. The crew comes onto the set. Bob Rafelson appears. He's talking to 10 people at once. The waitress pulls off her wig and is revealed to be a large man playing the role. Peter Tork goes up to Bob Rafelson and says, Bob, I just can't do it. I can't hit a girl especially when I'm all about nonviolence. This is supposed to be a movie for the kids. And Bob Rafelson, like most directors, brushes his requests off. He's like, okay, Pete, okay. And then Jack comes onto the scene. You can't miss him. He's got this very quintessentially yellow and orange 60s style shirt on and this white flat cap. And we can't hear anything he's saying. He and Bob Rafelson are standing very close, talking quietly to each other, being producers, you know. And Peter Tork is still at it. He's like, Bob, listen, I can't do it. I can't hit a girl. Finally, Rafelson says to him, Pete, if it doesn't work, we'll cut it. We'll leave it on the floor. And the producers walk off set. And Peter Tork says, oh, you say that all the time, but it never happens. The movie has a lot of cameo appearances. Frank Zappa makes an appearance. Davy Jones has this long solo musical number singing about when he becomes a man. 
And then once he goes outside onto the studio lot, Frank Zappa is there. And he says, that was really white. Which, you know, can't disagree. A very young Terry Garr has a scene. She plays Testy True. This is during the Settlers in the Old West scene. She pretends to die. And Mickey Dolenz just leans over her and says, Hey, get up, lady. You're not dead. And this is why I love Terry Garr. She puts on that attitude, leers up at him and says, Hey, what is this? Everything is little bits, little glimpses of scenes with distorted, demented little blips peppered in. And look, I don't want to imply to you that Head is devoid of meaning. I just said a few minutes ago, Head was a movie that was made with the intended purpose of demolishing the G-rated image of the monkeys. So while it may seem that there's no narrative to the movie, maybe it's pretty obvious what they're trying to say. Maybe not being able to notice what they're saying is sort of like not being able to see your own hand in front of your face. One thing is true. It's not traditional storytelling by any means. There's no catalyst. There's no clear rising or falling action. There's certainly no clear beginning, middle, and end. But one thing you do see a lot of in this movie, the guys are constantly trying to break out of the scene that they're in. Like that Old West scene, Mickey Dolenz becomes tired of playing the same old character, so he breaks character, walks off set, tearing right through the backdrop. The scene in the diner, Peter Tork doesn't want to play the scene as written and he's not being listened to. This is the same thing that happens in each of these rapid moving scenes. They're trying to break out. They're trying to get out of that place. And in real life, that place was being the monkeys, these goofy, aw shucks kind of characters who played tunes and made the girls go crazy. And there's this scene towards the end that really plays to that idea. Davy Jones, Mickey Dolenz, and Michael Nesmith are being ushered through the studio. They're making their way to the set. And Peter Tork is following behind them, and he's trying to stop them, just get them to listen. He's like, guys, hold on. You have to listen to me. You have to listen to me. And as they're all entering into a doorway, he says, you have to listen to me or we'll all end up back in the box. And at that moment, the guys are in this dark room, this black box with no doors or windows. And the three guys who didn't want to listen to Peter are banging on the walls, calling for help, trying to get out. And Peter Tork casually walks to the other side of the box and lights a match, giving them some light. Now he's finally got their attention. Peter, what are you doing? Hey, Peter, what's with this room? Yeah, what were you yelling outside? I couldn't hear you all the noise. Mm, but you listen now. Now that it's too late. <laughs> Come on, Peter. Come on, Peter. And before it was shut up, Peter. And from you, don't be rude, Peter. Now look, Peter, if you know how to get out of this box, man, you sure better Just tell me. cool it, Mike, will you? Just cool it. Let him yeah, do but, it in his own oh, time. Thank you, David. Look, just take your time, Peter, man. I'm with you all the way down the line. You hear that? Right down the line. Perhaps you'd like to sit down.
talking with the master regarding the nature of conceptual reality. Psychologically speaking, the human mind or brain or whatever is almost incapable of distinguishing between the real and the vividly imagined experience, sound and film of music and radio. Even these manipulated experiences are received more or less directly and uninterpreted by the mind. They are cataloged and recorded and either acted upon directly or stored in the memory or both. Now, this process, unless we pay it tremendous attention, begins to separate us from the reality of the now. Am I being clear? For we must allow the reality of the now to just happen as it happens. Observe and act with clarity. For where there is clarity, there is no choice. And where there is choice, there is misery. But then, why should I speak? since I know nothing. Nothing? You know nothing? That's right. You mean to tell me we've been sitting here listening to you and you know nothing? Well, take it easy, Doc. Easy? What do you mean, take it easy? Now, we're stuck in a room. We're stuck in this big black fox. Now, you're telling me to take it easy, and he's saying he don't know nothing. Now, what is this? Don't you see, David? It doesn't matter whether we're in the box or not. It's not important, huh? Well, let me tell you something. It's important to me. I'll show you how to get out of this box. You want to get out of this box? This is how you get out. And with that, Davy bursts through the walls of the box, and he goes on a rampage. He's a wild man. I feel like that was the point of the whole movie. They're breaking out of the box, this neat little package that they were put into when they landed the roles on their NBC sitcom in 1966. Head premiered in New York on November 6th, 1968, and then in Hollywood on November 20th. It was not a commercial success, but since then, it has garnered a cult following just for its craziness which over time was ultimately received as very innovative. Now, as for the soundtrack, the soundtrack to Head reached number 45 on the Billboard charts. I read that Jack assembled the soundtrack, and I didn't really know what that meant at first. Does that mean that he mixed it and produced it? Does Jack have yet another talent that I wasn't even aware of? Well, what he did do was he weaved pieces of dialogue from the movie and sound effects in between each song on the record. And he used different pieces of dialogue at times that are different from the movie. For example, in Frank Zappa's cameo, where he says that was really white, in the soundtrack, we hear that line. And right after it, we hear a line where Michael Nesmith says, and the same goes for Christmas. And those lines are not together in the movie, but it's clever and gives you something new when you hear it in the soundtrack. So from what I can tell, it would appear to me that the soundtrack almost gives you a whole new story that you don't derive from the movie. 
Michael Nesmith actually said that the soundtrack was one of the crowning achievements of the band. And that was Jack's first of many collaborations with director Bob Rafelson. When you think about the future works that they would have together, which, of course, we'll get to all of them in time, it's pretty crazy to think that it all started with the monkeys, of all things. Now, the fact that it was the late 60s and they were in their early 30s and there were a number of party drugs involved, well, that's not as crazy to think. That's actually quite believable. And not for nothing. Head is also the one movie where you can say you have a young, unknown Jack Nicholson and the monkeys on the bill. So my suggestion to you would be this. When you watch Head... It helps to have an idea of what you're getting into. Don't expect the same monkeys that you may have seen on their old sitcom. And don't expect a clear story arc, nor an easy-to-follow narrative. And far be it from me to encourage any use of substances. But if it's what you fancy, it certainly may help. You can find Head available in full on YouTube. It's also available from the Criterion Collection. I was able to get it on Blu-ray as a part of a box set with a slew of other works from our man Jack. It's also available on DVD from Amazon. And as I browse through the Amazon listings, I also see that the soundtrack is still available on vinyl, on CD, and for download. If that's something that you might want to give a go to as well. Next week, guys... Guess what? My friends, we've done it. We have made it. We are out of Jack's B-movie era. Because guess what movie we are talking about? Yes, we are going to be talking about Jack Nicholson's breakthrough role as ACLU lawyer George Hansen in 1969's Easy Rider. Yes, the day has come. But think of it this way. As long as it may have felt for me, and I can only assume for a lot of listeners, to get through Jack's first B-movie, Crybaby Killer, in 1958, all the way up to now, Think about how long those 11 years must have felt for Jack himself. We've all just been watching movies every week. Jack lived this for more than a decade. Hats off to this man because he is one who worked for every single thing that he has gotten. So please subscribe to You Don't Know Jack on your favorite podcast app. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review. You can find You Don't Know Jack on social media, You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to follow Clovercrest Media Group on all your socials. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and meet everyone else in the Clovercrest family. Discover other great original podcasts. I'll be back next week and we'll finally, really, get down to business. Until then... I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack.